A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored anonymously by a dedicated listener and supporter of Jewish History Soundbites in honor of a topic which is close to his heart. Uh, we're going to talk about the Rebbe Rashab, Rebbe Shalom Beresh-Nirsin, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, Lubavitch, and his stance uh, on Zionism and, and, uh, and activities that he uh, undertook in opposition of the Zionist movement, which is a fascinating topic. Before we get to that, I want to make a correction about the recent episode we had on the Vilna Gain. I had an episode entitled The Legacy of the Vilna Gain. And in that, I believe I mentioned incorrectly that the Vilna Gain's name was, last name was Kramer, uh, Rebelio Kramer. I think I wrote it originally in the uh, in the description, or I think I may have even said it on the episode. I said it definitely without thinking, because in reading all about him and his life and his legacy and his accomplishments, the one thing I didn't uh, look into, double-check, was um, it was his name. Um, for some reason, I went with the uh, standard uh, urban legend that his uh, name was Kramer. His name was definitely not. Uh, they didn't even have last names in those days, but he didn't have any even nickname or anything that was uh, Kramer. I, I was mistaken in saying that. I got a letter from a listener uh, he wrote like this, Regarding your most recent episode, do you know of any contemporary documentation showing Kramer as the Gain's family name? This is a common mistake. It obviously derives from his grandfather being referred to as a Kramer, which is a storekeeper by trade. However, this was not a proper family name. The Gain was listed in the census as Elias Zelmanovich, which is his father's name, of course, like in all Russian documents. Shlema Zalman was his father, so he was Rebeliyahu ben Shlema Zalman. Definitely had no connection to the name uh, uh, Kramer. So the Gain is not Kramer. Um, so what is his name? Uh, we have to figure that out now, and maybe it's uh, Van Nostrand. Uh, no professor or not, but if it's not Kramer, then maybe it's Van Nostrand. So I want to get to the topic of the Rashab the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, and um, and his his opposition to the Zionist movement. Um, there's all kinds of great sources out there 
that discuss it. Um, he, he contributed a letter of his to a pamphlet, which we're going to discuss, um, which was the first uh, Orthodox uh, pamphlet, uh, which was anti-Zionist. was called Arla Yisharim. His anti-Zionist views are also included in the introduction to his uh, Sefer, Kuntras Umayan Mi Beis Hashem. There's been quite a bit written about it in um, research all over the place. Uh, the books and essays and papers uh, written about it, they're scattered all over in both Hebrew and English. Uh, the best summary that I found was in just my own opinion. It doesn't mean that it's that it is the best, um, but the one I primarily used was in uh, besides for reading the Arla Yisharim, the original letter of the Rashab himself and the background and the Rashab's life. Uh, but it, the, one of the best summaries in uh, a recently published book by Ilya Luria he has a great book called Milchamot Lubavitch in Hebrew. And it's, in general, a fantastic book about Taim uh, Chetmimim and the Rashab and and uh, his leadership. Uh, I think he did a great job. So there's uh, one little sub-chapter about um, the Rashab and Zionism. So in the background is, first of all, we have to understand is that during this time, uh, we're talking about the 1880s, the 1890s, the early 1900s, the... The leadership years of uh, the Rebbe Rashab. Um, again, the just just put him into context. Uh, the Rebbe Rashab, Reb Shalom Ber, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad in Lubavitch, is the son, not the oldest son, but the son of the fourth Rebbe of Chabad Lubavitch, the Maharash, Reb Shemuel Schneerson. And um, he, of course, was the youngest son of the Tzemach Tzedek of Chabad, when the Tzemach Tzedek had passed away, so I discussed, I had an entire episode about how it branched out. There were different uh, children who opened up different uh, Chabad courts and Kapust and, and Liadi and Yezhin and, and other places. And uh, the headquarters in Lubavitch um, went to uh, his youngest son, the Maharash. And then it passed on to the Rashab. So we're at a time in the history of Chabad where um, where there's several Chabad courts, Lubavitch is just one, and one, and at this point, before the Rashab restores Lubavitch to its prominence, which he does, he's the one who does it, and it only takes place at the end of the 1890s, and really more so in the early 1900s, which I discussed in that episode, so Lubavitch is not the most prominent court, uh, Kapust is usually the most prominent one, there's Liadi, there's others as well. So that's the background, that's what's going on in the Chabad movement uh, at the time. In 1998, the Rashab stated his opposition to the nationalism of Chibas Tzien and the need to act against the movement for the first time. The first time he comes out with it is in 1898. Between, again, you have to understand the context, what's going on in 1898. So... First of all, the Zionist movement is now on the stage. It's not just the Chaim movement. It's now political Zionism of Theodore Herzl. And between the Second and Third Zionist Congresses, the Tarbut issue was first raised. Tarbut was what eventually adopted it as part of the platform of the Zionist movement was to include education and culture uh, as part of the Zionist platform to prepare the Jewish people for 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 nationalism for for having their own country and 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 value system and, and this was you know 
kind of discussion about Zionism and and uh, and uh, and and the the uh, the platform that is later adopted over the course of the coming decade uh, um, in the Zionist movement. So the years eight the year between the years of eighteen ninety eight and nineteen hundred, talking about a period of two three years, these are critical years uh, for the formation of of the traditionalists the rabbinical leadership in the Russian Empire to form their opinions about the nascent Zionist movement. And it's when the active opposition of Orthodox Jewry, of traditionalist rabbinical leadership, really gains steam. It happens during these crucial years. Before these years, there were many supporters of Chayu and even the ones who opposed it. It was not vocal, it was not organized, and then after, after, after these years, this is when the formation of the opposition happens, and the Rashab is right at the center of it all. He's involved in forming that, in organizing it, in actually initiating it. And the Rashab was involved with several other anti-modernist campaigns at the time to strengthen the traditionalist camp, to, tra- to strengthen traditional Judaism in, in Russia. He's in, in, actively involved. Uh, he was uh, a couple of years l- earlier, in 1897, he had founded the Taimchei Yeshiva, which was, of course, his, um, his, one of his greatest uh, weapons in strengthening the ranks of, of traditional Jewry and among his own followers in, in, in Russia against the, the modernist trends. He was also involved with the opposition uh, against the Chevra uh, Marbe Haskala, a society to promote... Uh, enlightenment among the Jews of Russia. It was mostly based in out of St. Petersburg, which is also a fascinating story. The Rashab was involved in 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 uh, the whole challenge of the of, of the Rav Mitam, the, uh, the the Crown rabbis, the Tsarist recognized rabbis who were government bureaucrats, and which was a major issue in Russia. And I've addressed it before. I've discussed it in several episodes. He was, the Rashab was involved in the opposition to the rabbinical seminaries, which had been established for a time in Russia. And he also initiated a campaign against implementing changes to the structure of the rabbinate and the possibility of them requiring, of requiring rabbis to have a general education background. So his opposition to Zionism can be seen in the greater context of his leadership activities at that time, confronting the challenges of modernity among the Jewish communities of Russia, and it was not unique uh, uh, about about facing Zionism. It was more about all the different trends and challenges that he saw, and as a leader, and a very charismatic and dynamic and important leader at the time, he saw it as, 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 as part of you know, um, a big, bigger package. Um, his chief operating officer in many of these campaigns, and especially his emissary to the non-Hasidic rabbis, the Lithuanian Torah leaders and activists, was a famous Chabad rabbi named Rebeliezer Moshe Madievsky, um, who was like a, like a lieutenant of, of the Rashab. He was the rabbi of Chorol, which is a town near Poltava in, in Ukraine. He was the head of the Temchei Tmimim branch over there a very active rabbinical leader in Russia and the right-hand man of the Rashab in many instances, very interesting figure. What's even more interesting is that his nephew was the young and later legendary uh, scholar and historian, politician, leader, named Ben-Zion Dinur. 
Um, ben Tzion Dinur is, is a, also a fascinating topic. Uh, he was the architect of the Jewish History Department at Hebrew University. He was the ch- first chairman of Yad Vashem. He was the founder and the head of the Israel, Israel Historical Society. He did groundbreaking research in many areas, among many, many, many other great accomplishments. This is not the time to discuss Ben Tzion Dinur. Many disliked him for a variety of reasons. Um, he had many dislikable uh, things across his long career. Also, he also started off his career, uh, started off his life as a student of Tel's yeshiva and as a student in in Slabatki yeshiva. And later on, he studied in Taimchet Mimim. So he's come from a very traditional yeshiva background. Uh, he's a Talmud of Reb Shimon Shkup in in, in Tel's actually. Um, so and then it, before he left, uh, very became very distant to a traditional uh, Jewish life. Um, but it was indisputable that he was a great scholar whose contribution is almost unmatched. Uh, and uh, he's a topic for another time. Either way, but getting back to why it's important that he's part of the story, because his being Rabbi Eliezer nephew was to have a crucial role in the development of the opposition of the Rashab to the Zionist movement, as we'll soon see. So Rabbi Yezir was sent by the Rashab to seek out broad support from the Lithuanian non-Hasidic Torah leaders and activists in his upcoming campaign against Zionism. And the Rashab's primary partner in this endeavor was none other than the famous Yaakov Lifshitz of Kovna, the longtime secretary of Rabbi Yitzchak Khanan Specter, the late Kovna Rav, who had already passed away by this point, uh, several years earlier, um, and who ironically had been supportive of the Chayyavetzian movement, but Yaakov Lifshitz was a, a very active anti-Zionist and was leader of the opposition. Um, so his group, Yaakov Lifshitz's group, which was based in Kavna, which was anti many things, um, also a whole story which I touched on a couple of times. But among them, among the many things they were anti were was a fierce and, and they were vicious opponents of Zionism. And they, they were termed, Yaakov Lishitz and his group were termed the Lishka Hashchora, the black, uh, Lishka is like office or administrative center. Or, so they, it was a title bestowed upon them by an individual named Avram Yaakov Slotsky in a militant article against the Lishka Hashchora, which he titled in that article, in Hamelitz, in 1899. Uh, eventually, Lifshitz grew proud of the title and used it himself. He actually came to came to adopt it himself. Slotsky was an interesting figure also. He was a writer and editor for Hamelitz, and he was initiator of the Shiva Tzion pamphlet, which was a pamphlet produced in, in, uh, in the early 1890s, a pamphlet of rabbis, uh, a comp- compilation of, of rabbis who supported the Shiva Tzion uh, movement. And as and he, he was a good coiner of terms, he did pretty well. He coined the term Lishka Shchora, but he also coined the term Mizrahi when the religious Zionist uh, party uh, was founded in 1902, which he was uh, involved with as well. Uh, Slotsky had unfortunately a tragic ending. He never had any children, and he and his wife were killed in the post World War One pogroms uh, in the civil war that was going on between the Bolsheviks and the. Uh, and the white Russians, the supporters of the Tsar. So both Slotsky and his fellow Zionists, as well as Yaakov Lifshitz and his counterparts, all both sides of the uh, of the of the dispute here, believed that the Lishka Hashchora was an active 
an organized organization against nationalism and Zionism since the 1880s. In reality, it was not that organized until this time, and it was not. Uh, it was it was really much more sporadic, engaging in occasional polemics, and it only became more organized and active with this initiative in conjunction with the Rashab in the late 1890s. So the Rashabs reaching out to Yaakov Lushitz and the two of them working together made the Lishkash Chora more organized and more effective. Until then, it was it was much more sporadic. In, in what it was doing. So the goals of the Rashab, together with Yaakov Lifshitz and the Lishka Shchora, was to present a united Orthodox front against Zionism in the form of international and cross-denominational rabbinic agreement. A public declaration was planned, a kol koire, which would essentially be a declaration of war against the Zionist movement and the creation of a propaganda machine in the form of articles and pamphlets to reach the masses of Russian Jewry, which would transform the playing field of opposition to Zionism, which until that point was, like I said, it was very, you know, occasional and, and individual and disorganized. This, from now on, it would be organized opposition with broad, enjoying broad rabbinical support, and it was initiated and overseen, this project, by the Rashab, who was the leading force with it in conjunction with Yaakov Lifshitz and the Lishka Hashchora. So Madievsky arrives in Kovna around the time of Shavuos in 1899, and the goals of the Kovna group was to present this Kol Kairi with leading signatures of, of leading rabbinical figures, which would encourage others, once the leaders are there, it would encourage other rabbis across Russia to join the bandwagon and sign as well. They thought they'd find the sympathetic ear, ears in not only in the traditionalist camp, but also ironically in the Maskilik and the 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 finance giants, the, the wealthy Jews of St. Petersburg who were more... Um, integrated into Russian society, and they were concerned about Jewish nationalism as it differed from their pro-Russian and pro-integration into Russian society worldview. Um, so they would get support even outside the traditional Jew, 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 Jewish community. That was the goal. that was also the goal, and they also had a goal of garnering support within the corridors of the Tsarist Russian government because they were also concerned about rising Jewish nationalism. So. It was the plan was to have a nice uh, coalition uh, of which would uh, which would uh, they would be supportive of, of this opposition to uh, Zionism uh, in, in the Zionist movement in in Russia. So they what they they um, this Kol Kaire and which did not did did not uh, materialize. We'll see why in a second. A year later, a half a year later or so, they do eventually published this Orla Yesharim pamphlet, which I'm going to get to. Um, it was, but it was, this was a response to, like I mentioned, the, the Shivas Tzion pamphlet, which had been published eight years earlier in 1892, um, and that had been a collection of rabbinical support for the Chayvavetzian movement, and also it was a response to the rise of the Zionist movement, the political Zionism of Theodor Herzl, which had recently come onto the scene. So this they, there was a need for this response. The Kol Kaire did not work out, and the reason is because the Zionists found out about it beforehand, and they raised a hue and a cry and a public outcry that followed lessened the chances of garnering widespread rabbinic support. So the question is, how did they find out? 
And the answer is Ben Siyam Dinur, who was a young teenager still at the time. And the young Ben Siyam Dinur was, was in Kavna at this time. And he was present at the meetings between Rabbi Eliezer Moshe Madievsky and Yaakov Lifshitz and the Lishka Shkora. Why was he present? Because it was his uncle. And, you know, he's hanging out with him. So he's actually there. He's an eyewitness to the events. And he writes about it in his memoirs, Ba'olam Shashaka, which is also fascinating. And he... Um, he goes ahead and then informs on his uncle and the Lishka Shchora to the local Zionists and Kavnas. Incredible story that he's writing about it. So Dinur, the young Dinur, who's this future historian, is making history. He's standing at the crossroads of history, and, and it's a you know it's a, a wild story. So the Kolkairi doesn't work out. However, the Rashab was already acting on his own. In the summer of 1899, he pens a now historic letter whose contents has become the basis of all religious anti-Zionism since that time. He was he initiated, he opened the first volley uh, of this you know, attack, essentially. It was addressed, the letter was addressed to a specific chassid of his in the city of Kherson in, in, in southern Ukraine, but copies of it were soon distributed to all of his Hasidim across Russia, so it became widespread among his followers across the Russian Empire, and it was essentially a declaration of war. He did not go to war in the public sphere, the general public sphere yet, because he needed partners. He was still waiting for the Lishka Shchora to get their act together. In the meantime, though, he's acting as a Rebbe to his Hasidim. He's sharing his view with his own followers, and within that context. He's not going to the media yet, He's writing a letter which is then copied among his own Hasidim. So it's still somewhat contained. Uh, several months later, in January 1900, Yaakov Lifshitz and his partners in arms finally published their pamphlet, and it's entitled Orla Yesharim, which is a very strong opening volley in the Orthodox battle against Zionism. There exists a debate among historians until today how much of an influence Orla Yesharim had on the wider Jewish public in Russia, both Zionists and non-Zionists, and it's possible that it was only a negligible impact. It's also possible that it was a very large impact. It's unclear, but what's important in the context of our discussion is the actual content of this pamphlet. What was in this pamphlet? What was in Arla Yisharim? So there are several parts. It, it opens up with a series of essays uh, about you know you know telling well, what's wrong with the Zionist movement. It's, it was penned likely by Yaakov Lifshitz himself or one of his close. Uh, uh, cohorts. Um, there are then, this is followed by then by seven letters from leading rabbinical leaders decrying the Zionist movement. Uh, most are short and, and they don't have a, a lengthy description of what the exact issues are, um, but they include, what's important is that they include some of the leading rabbinical figures of the day, Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Chaim Slovechik, the rabbi of Brisker, who was one of the uh, most respected and, and, and important rabbinical leaders in all of Russia, Reb David Friedman, Reb David Karliner, who reversed his earlier support for the Chibas Tzian movement and now comes out strongly against Zionism. That was also extremely important and impactful. Reb Yechai Mezel, the Rav of Ludz, Reb Yasef Rosen, the Ragachover uh, of, of Dvinsk, there's the Rav of Hardenka, and then there are two letters which are elaborated, which actually were lengthy and and elaborate on the reasons uh, explaining their opposition to Zionism and actually going through it point by point. So those letters are definitely more interesting. One of them was Rabbi, Naftali, Rabbi Dr. Naftali Herman Adler, the chief rabbi of England and the British Empire. 
and the Rashab, who simply submitted his aforementioned letter to Lifshitz upon his upon the latter's request uh, to to include it in the Arla Yishar. So before we focus on the Rashab's letter, it's worth noting uh, that uh, Dr. Rabbi Dr. Naftali Herman Adler's inclusion in his response is a fascinating topic on its own merit. The person raising the points, as well as the points which he emphasized, are worthy of a story for another time. This, you know, from this rabbi from Western Europe, a German rabbi, who's the, he's actually an English rabbi. His father was, the original Rabbi Adler was German, but uh, he was, his son was, you know, British, uh, and, and he succeeds his father, and uh, and he he's included in this story, and he's someone who also had originally expressed support for the Chayvetzian uh, movement, and now uh, is writing this, uh, he it was actually a speech, based on a speech that he gave in England, uh, in addition, it's also an interesting side note that Rav Cook, um, Rav Cook had a copy of the Arla Yisharim in his possession, and he wrote in the margins responses to what was being expressed in the Arla Yisharim pamphlet, which defended Zionism against the allegations. And the one where he focused primarily on was his response to uh, Rabbi Adler's points. That, that's uh, there's a whole essay just recently written. I don't know, it could be it wasn't recent. I re- read it recently on on this Rabbi Adler's uh, position in in our life, expressed in our Sharm and Rav Cook's response to it. Uh, fascinating uh, essay. But let's get back to the Rashab. This historic letter that the Rashab wrote, uh, included in our Sharm includes contains three po- primary points. One was theological, and it was one of the earliest references to the three shvuos, the three oaths, which are became a central component of of, uh, of the theological issues with uh, creating a state before Mashiach comes, before Mashiach's arrival. Uh, I think the first one to have mentioned it was Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. He made an early reference to it in a different context. Rabbi Herman Adler in this pamphlet, Arli Sharm, also references it based on a speech he delivered to his congregation in England. But the Rashab is considered the first major Torah leader to have brought this issue of Dhika Saketz, of, of pushing off the Mashiach's arrival by forcing it, by 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 uh, coming back and by you know violating the three Shavuos, and he brings it to the forefront of anti-Zionist opposition. More than a half a century later, the Satmarov would adopt it and make it a central component of his anti-Zionist philosophy. But the one who pioneered it was the Rashab uh, in 1900, so many years earlier. The second point the Rashab raises in the letter is the secular nature of the Zionist movement and especially of its leaders. This would come to be a very familiar and defining feature of Orthodox opposition in the coming decades and to a certain extent until this very day. The third point is also interesting. He raises several practical considerations in a very practical way. He says how are they going to get funding? How are they going to purchase land? How are they going to convince the nations of the world and the empires of the world to agree to allow the Jews to establish their own country? He raises all these impediments, uh, technical issues that are going to be, he says the Jews don't possess the know-how of running their own country. In certain ways, it will require things which are against the very nature of the Jewish people to have uh, in, in the way, in statehood and nationalism. So he, he enumerates all these points, which in his opinion are practical uh, challenges to uh, creating a state. Um, so this, this letter was to have uh, big reverberations in the Jewish world because these points which he summarizes very nicely in the letter and are published in Arlai Sharm, become the pillars of 
of, of orthodox uh, anti-Zionist ideas over the coming century. Two years later, uh, when in 1902, the Mizrahi, the religious Zionist party, is founded, and the Rashab was asked by one of his followers if his view changed now that there was a religious alternative within the Zionist movement. And the Rashab responds with a letter to his followers stating that in ways Mizrahi is even worse because they're granting religious legitimacy to what his opinion was an illegitimate cause. This outlook fit neatly into the general worldview of the Rashab, such as with his opposition to the requirement that rabbis be certified by the Tsarist government that they attain a level of general education, because in his opinion... A, that would constitute a mix between religious life and ideals and modernist trends encroaching on those ideals. So in the Rashab's eyes, that mixing between the two would be even more of a, a, a danger than outright uh, secularism or, or outright assimilation. Subsequently, he addressed it yet another time, another year later, in 1903, responding to the claim that perhaps Zionism will ensure Jewish identity among those who are now on their way toward the road of assimilation. So this will form a new basis for, Zionism can form a new basis for Jewish identity. His response, which is another letter that he writes, is incisive and and in fact, quite relevant even a century later, over a century later, he clarifies how nationalism, Jewish nationalism, is a new type of Jewish identity, and it's going to replace Jewish identity, which had until this point based, been based upon religion and traditional Jewish observance, and therefore this new Jewish identity has no value and is dangerous for the Jewish future. Sometime after that, the Rashab discontinued his public polemics with Zionism. Instead, he focused on strengthening traditional Jewry and his own court through other means, such as Yeshiva's time, Chet But his pioneering clarifications of the Orthodox anti-Zionist position was to set the tone of the point of conflict for decades to come. What the most fascinating point of all this is that Chabad Lubavitch was to eventually modify its stance on Zionism and the State of Israel over the course of the 20th century, almost coming full circle, the fascinating story of how that transformation uh, came about will have to be a part two of this topic of Chabad and Zionism with the world developments of the 20th century, along with the leadership and personalities of the next two Rebbes and leaders of Chabad Lubavitch after the Rishab, which uh, en- enabled that transformation to happen. So this is Yehuda Gabriel Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGabra.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. I hope you enjoyed.